It's uh, great to see you guys this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the uh, pastors here, and I get the privilege of uh, sharing the word with you this morning. How about that guy, Jeremy, just rubbing it in, letting you know that he's at Disney World, and you are not. You're here. So, no, we're really, really excited for him and happy that he and his family get to go and do that, and uh, really excited to continue in our series in Isaiah. So hopefully you guys are ready. You guys excited? Oh, all right. All right, a little bit of response. That's good. Okay. Uh, The year was 1991. I asked this last service, and I have a feeling it's going to be even worse. Well, worse or better, depending on what you think worse or better is. Even worse in this service. How many of you were not even born by 1991? Yeah, I'm looking over here because I knew, like, this whole area, no one's born at 90. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess that tells you that I'm a little bit older than you guys, for sure. But in, the year was 1991, and I stood awkwardly in the church, uh, in the lobby of the church uh, where I grew up. I, I stood awkwardly there because I was waiting for a girl that I liked to come by so that I could ask her a very important question. And the very important question that I was going to ask her was, will you go out with me? I was thinking about this when I thought about what I said to this young lady, who, by the way, would become my wife. Yeah, exactly. All right. I like that. All right. Some energy. Um, that when I said that, which is literally what I asked her, will you go out with me? The intention was not that we were going to go anywhere. We were young. My parents weren't going to let me date. They weren't going to let me go anywhere. They weren't going to let her go anywhere. But yet that is what you said when I was of that age. In order to ask someone to be your boyfriend or girlfriend, you said, Will you go out with me? It's an ironic turn of phrase. I don't necessarily know what the, the coolest you know, thing to say now is. is. Is there something you say when you want someone to be your boyfriend or girlfriend, Austin? <laughs> He's the guy with all the terminology. Nothing. You've gone past the idiocy that was your parents and grandparents. Because like when, when your grandparents were around, it was like, will you go steady with me? If that's what you said, I'm sorry to break it to you, but you're really old. So I went through the, the, the period where it was, will you go out with me with no intention of actually going on a date? It just meant we like each other now. And, and thus begun the, uh, the wonderful uh, journey that, that led to my wife and I getting married. So that was in 1991. And two weeks later, two weeks later, the uh, theatrical masterpiece, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, came out in theaters. Now, if you haven't seen that movie, especially a lot of you younger people over here, you definitely need to go back and check that one out, one of Kevin Costner's finest works. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, he shoots like two arrows at the same time. It's sweet, you know what I mean? Anyway, what was a big part of that movie was Brian Adams crooning the theme song in that movie, which can someone tell me what it is? Everything I do. I do it for you, right? I mean, it's got, the, it's got these great, you know, um, I don't even know what you would call them, these, these lyrics that, you know, just you can sing your heart out to, right? And, and he says, you know it's true, everything I do, I do it for you. I'm not going to try and sing it for you. Oh, and here's the bridge. I would fight for you. Yeah, I'd lie for you. I'd walk the wire for you. Yeah, I'd die for you. You know it's true. (laughs) How many of you are hearing Brian Adams' voice in your head? I hope you are because you don't want to hear that. You know what I mean? It it, it was wonderful. And I remember thinking, even at the time, I remember thinking to myself, like, 
I wonder who he's singing to, and two, would he really die for them? Would he really walk the wire for them? Everything he does, he does it for this person that he's singing to. Now, that didn't stop me from going home and learning the song on the piano and trying to use it to my advantage to continue to woo my future wife, which I did. And I'm sure many other women, you know, swooned over their suitors, you know, trying to use the same thing. But it, ne- it, was, it, was kinda, it was never lost on me that I felt like, you know, this really feels more aspirational rather than reality. Like, is he actually capable of doing these things? Am I is it capable of doing these things? It, it was, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty funny and, and pretty crazy. This, this last week, in fact, pushing forward, this last week I was at a wedding of two young people that I really, really love, Harrison Bauer and Kaylee Jones, who are now married, which is crazy, and it reminds me of how young that Jen and I must have looked when we were getting married, like we were just two kids getting married, because that's what they looked like. But I pictured, as Kaylee is walking down the aisle, I pictured Harrison belting out this power ballad to Haley that everything he did, he did it all for, you know. And now Harrison's got a pretty nice voice. I've heard him sing before, but I doubt that he can really live up to the raspy primo pipes of Brian Adams. You know, as, as I've been looking at the passage that we're going to study today, Isaiah 53, and I've been thinking about it, my, I've been struck by this concept of marriage and this concept of sacrifice in relationships. Like, I don't think Brian Adams really was going to die for someone. I don't know that I necessarily was going to die for someone, especially not at 14. But I know someone who did. And I think about this concept of marriage and I think about the passage that we're going to endeavor to take a look at this morning in Isaiah chapter 53. I was struck with the the picture of, of marriage and the metaphor in scripture used that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the bridegroom. He is the ultimate groom and we are his bride. I am his bride. You, if you know Jesus, are his bride. We together are his bride. And it's interesting to me that I keep being struck with that because it's a concept that in the past and honestly still to this day, I don't always do super well with. Like, I'm a pretty simple guy and my personality is driven towards reason and logic and analyzation and current physical realities. So when me as a man am told that you are going to be a bride, that feels odd to me. It's always felt odd to me. And then when you take it a step further and you go, we are all going to be the bride. But over the last decade or so, God has kindly kept bringing this back to me and showing me the love relationship and the pursuit of Christ in my life. And I'm not sure that that is ever seen more evidently than in Isaiah chapter 53. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's open there, Isaiah chapter 53. And I have to admit at times, this passage just seems beyond me. I'm so, I'm so humbled by it. On one hand, it's one of the most famous and crucial and pivotal passages of all of Scripture that is so deep, I mean, deeper than the universe. And on the other hand, you pull things from it that are just the simple realities of the essentials of the gospel. And so this morning, I, I just want to highlight some of those simple realities by way of observation. Just four things that I kind of find, um, I mean, honestly, if I'm being honest, four things that I find incredibly moving 
I don't want to downplay them and say that they're just these simple little observations. They are things that, that at points in my life and, and at points in my study this week have been devastating because I am seeing deeper and more straight in front of my face what Christ has done for me and what Christ has done for you. He is the groom and he is pursuing his bride. And if anyone could make good on those words that Brian Adams sang, it is him. Now, every illustration breaks down, okay? Everything God does is not for you. (laughs) God is for his glory and that is the best thing for us. So I fully recognize that that illustration breaks down, but I do know this, he died for you. He died for me. And we see this in Technicolor in Isaiah chapter 53. So I've got four observations, and as we kind of engage with these observations, I want us to kind of do three things as we kind of go through each one. And so those three things that I want us to do is I want us to recognize it, I want us to see it. I want us to look in the scriptures and see the observations, see what Christ did in his pursuit of us to redeem us, his people. I want us to recognize it and see it. Then I want us to appreciate it. I want us to be grateful for it. I want us to bow our knees. And that, that's kind of on you. That, that's, that's some of you like in the moment. I had a, a woman come up after the last service and, and she was kind of down here in the front row and she was crying through half of the message and not, not because of anything that I said necessarily, but this passage... This passage, if you are near the heart of Christ, breaks us. It shows us who he is. It shows us his love. It shows us the depths and lengths that he went to because of his love for us. So I want us to appreciate it. And that's kind of on you. We're going to appreciate him in worship. We're going to appreciate him as we think about this throughout the week. And then the third thing, the last thing I want to do with each one of these observations is I want to follow him. I want to enter into his example. If these are the things that he did to redeem his bride, if these are the things that he did out of love, if these are the things that he did in his life, and I want to follow Jesus, I want to know what the implications of these things are for me, and how can I be like Christ in them. So these four things that we're going to take a look at this morning are this. How did Christ pursue us in his love for us? One, he became ordinary. Two, he suffered violence. Three, he took your place. And four, he put you in his place. So one, he became ordinary. Two, he suffered violence. Three, he took your place. And four, he put you in his place. So first, he became ordinary. And again, if you're in Isaiah chapter 53, let's just look at verses two and three. Isaiah chapter 53, verses two and three say this. For he grew up before him like a young plant. He's talking about Jesus here. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. There's a reality in the life of Christ, especially when he came to this earth, that he gave up things. And I think we know that intrinsically. We kind of, we understand that. But he became ordinary, that might even be too lofty of a word. He might have, I, it might be more accurate to say he became less than ordinary, but I, he became ordinary. The God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ became ordinary on our behalf. It says in those verses, he had no beauty, nothing to attract us to him. He grew up like a normal kid. It's not just like he looked average. It really says there is nothing to attract you to him. 
it would kind of lead you to believe he was on the, the low side of average. Maybe even lower than that. Maybe many of you in this room are now going, ooh, I can identify with that kind of a Jesus. When I was in junior high, I remember going to my local Christian bookstore and I bought this shirt that I thought was awesome. And it was, it was a shirt that had Jesus on the front of it and he was like doing a push-up off the ground with the cross on his back and he had like the crown of thorns with like the perfectly placed tasteful drops of blood and sweat and this, Jesus was ripped on this shirt. He was like bodybuilder Jesus. And he was like doing this like push-up and everything was like flexed. He looked a little bit like me. And, and on the back of it, it said, his pain, your gain, right? Kind of that turn of phrase, his pain, your gain. I thought it was awesome. Only later did I realize it was probably a little bit sacrilegious. And I also know now, Jesus did not look anything like that. Oftentimes in movies, we see these depictions of Christ, and there is very winsome parts of him physically. This was, we didn't, it was not bodybuilder Jesus. Jesus was not Jim Caviezel from The Passion of the Christ. Jim Caviezel is a pretty good-looking man, from what I understand. And, and that is not, the Bible is very clear, that is not what Christ looked like. He didn't look like the guy from The Chosen. He was ordinary. And yet in his ordinariness, God chose him. And more than that, in Philippians chapter 2, we are told that Jesus emptied himself. Philippians chapter 2 is this beautiful passage, and the word kenosin or kenosis is the Greek word that refers to the emptying, the voluntary emptying of divine attributes that Jesus gave up in order to walk this earth to become ordinary. Yet in it, I want to see Isaiah 53 chapter, or chapter 53, verse 1 says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For, and then it goes on, for he grew up like a shoot. So it's basically saying the arm of the Lord has been revealed to Jesus and those who are going to follow Jesus. What is the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord represents the strength and the power of the Lord. In the midst of the weakness of Jesus, in the midst of weakness, the power and strength of the Lord is present. In fact, there's almost like this, um, uh, this irony when you talk about power. In the world, when we talk about power, it means certain things. You think about position. You think about authority. You think about money. You think about maybe good looks and, and, and the things that go along with it. And the Bible is telling us, no, 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 you need to flip that on its head. That is not what God chooses to reveal his power in. That is not where the power of God resides. It does not reside in human strength. In fact, the more ordinary, the better. His power is displayed in the ordinary. So maybe we need to ask ourselves the question, how does the grace and power of God grow in my life? So often we can be attracted to like these moments in our faith that are like maybe super big and emotional, like maybe for a junior high or high school student, it might be a summer camp or a winter camp. Or maybe it's a miraculous answer to prayer. We can be very attracted to these things, and they're great. Those are wonderful things. They're super encouraging. But if we orient our spiritual life around those things and we do not master the ordinary, our growth in Christ will absolutely be stunted, and it might even come to ruin. Where we see the power of God displayed is when we orient our spiritual lives around mastering the ordinary. So what are those things? Now, there's simple things that you know. 
It's reading the Bible. It's prayer. It's getting together with the the body of Christ. It's hanging out with people who make you better and not so much with people who make you worse. It's accountability. It's the things that at times we can become discouraged by because it takes discipline to accomplish them sometimes. In 1942, C.S. Lewis wrote a great little book called The Screwtape Letters. How many of you here have read The Screwtape Letters? Quite a few of you. It's a fascinating kind of concept that he had. And when you think about it, that was in 1942. It kind of makes it even more interesting to me because that was such a long time ago. But his, his concept is this. He writes from the perspective of like an experienced demon. You didn't, if you haven't read it and you had no idea where this was going, you're like, oh, that is not what I expected. <laughs> he writes from the, from the position of an experienced demon writing to a junior demon. I think it's an uncle and a nephew, actually, the way that the book is set up. It's Screwtape is the older demon and Wormwood, which are great names for demons. I mean, if you're going to give demons names, you might as well give them nasty ones. So, and, and essentially, the whole book is him, like, giving, it's a satire of him giving strategies for attacking Christians in their faith. Like, here, here are the strategies and the, the concept is that we might learn from it and go, okay, where are the pitfalls? Where are the things that we could fall prey to? And one of the themes that runs through the book is that he constantly kind of, he's, he oftentimes mentions the fact that if you can get them caught up in ignoring the ordinary, get them caught up in being dissatisfied or frustrated with the things that actually will produce growth, Get them committed to things that don't produce growth and get them to ignore things like Bible reading. Get them to ignore things like prayer. Don't worry, they won't have the discipline to do it anyway. There's a kind of a passage in there where he talks about like someone's already become a Christian and he goes, don't worry, I mean, you can't take their Christianity away from them, but you can basically make them a worthless Christian. The devil knows where the power is and he attacks those things. And so we need to be people who master the ordinary. We need to be people who enter in with Jesus into the ordinary. So one, Jesus became ordinary on our behalf and for us. Number two, he suffered violence. He suffered violence. I use those two words very specifically because I could just say he suffered. A lot of times in Isaiah 53, we talk about that a lot, the suffering Christ. But I feel like that leaves it sometimes a little bit too generic to not recognize like, violence was done to Christ. And he went to that violence, he went to that suffering willingly for us. I want to read a lengthy passage here, but it is the passage that I feel like can preach itself. It's the passage that I think began the tears for the woman I was talking about in the last service. It's the passage that describes the lengths to which Christ went on our behalf. It's Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 11. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He, Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He, Christ, was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his Christ's wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich or with a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence there was, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. I feel like we could read that passage and go, let's just ponder that for the rest of the day. That's a message in and of itself. There's so much in there, so many places I see his suffering. In verses four and five, you see these words, stricken, pierced, crushed. Verse eight, he's cut off. And then in verse nine, there is such an ironic tragedy. He had done no violence. He had done no violence, and yet violence was being done to him. Why? Because of our violence. Because of our rebellion. Because of our wickedness. The Hebrew word for cut off in verse 8 speaks to the most violent of deaths. And the Hebrew word for pierced really gives us a picture of the most painful possible death. In that passage and in this moment, I want us to take a moment to consider this. Jesus Christ, who loved the world and came in the world to save the world, who became a servant, who was fully pleasing to God, who did no wrong, suffered. And he suffered terribly. Are you suffering today? Maybe you're here this morning and you're going through something extremely difficult. Maybe you've just recently been through a moment of suffering or you're in a season of suffering. And it feels like, it feels like, God, where are you? It feels like you're tempted to say, or maybe you have cried out, God, how can you say that you love me when I go through suffering this great? And my humble question for you this morning would be this. Have you seen Jesus? Have you looked to Christ? And I want to be really, really clear about this. I am not saying in this at all that somehow the solution to your suffering is to look to Christ and see that he suffered more so yours doesn't matter as much. That is not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that when you look to Christ, you see a Savior who is suffering with you. You see someone who was absolutely willing to enter into the deepest, darkest suffering on your behalf. He knows what it means to suffer and he is there with you. I also want you to know that in this reality, 
we see that through the suffering of Christ comes the redemption of the world and the salvation of everyone who would come to believe. God makes beauty from ashes. God does incredible things through suffering. His power is revealed in your suffering if we submit to him in the midst of it and recognize his love for us in the midst of it. And I know this can be so difficult, so difficult to trust because I don't get to see the end. There's such a cool passage in here, such a cool part here that we just read it, but verse 10 and 11 says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and he will prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, get this picture, out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus' soul, he shall see And be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Jesus sees and is satisfied. He sees what the suffering accomplished. He sees what the violence accomplished. And he is satisfied. In Genesis 50, verse 20, at the end of Joseph's life, there's this famous verse. And it says this, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And we think to ourselves, I think I've I've heard this passage a ton, I've heard it preached, and it's like, oh man, good for Joseph. Good for Joseph that he recognized that certainly sometimes things are meant for evil, but God means them for good. And I think sometimes we forget, we don't think about the depth of what he is saying here. He is saying this after 20 plus years of suffering. 20 years of suffering. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was put in jail. He was ripped out of his home never to see his father. For 20 plus years, he suffered for 20 plus years. He prayed prayers that I'm sure he felt like were not getting answered. And yet at the end of it, he can say, I see, I see. And though I can't tell you in your suffering exactly what God is doing, I can tell you this there will be a time where you will see. Even if it's not here, even if it's in eternity, and I can promise you this, that God's power is revealed in our weakness. God's strength is seen in our suffering. He draws near the brokenhearted. He wants to be with you. And so often we get mad and we push him off when we should be drawing him near and inviting him in. He wants to suffer with us. He is the suffering servant. He suffered such violence. So we see and we follow Christ into these places and we recognize the ways that we can see what he has done. We follow Christ into the ordinary. We follow Christ in his suffering. And then these last two are kind of like two sides of a coin. He took your place and then he put you in his place. This is the incredible exchange that happens on the cross that is purchased by his suffering. And when I say he took your place, I think immediately if we're Christians and we've been around church, we immediately think about the cross. He took my place on the cross, right? And that's absolutely true. That is the penultimate like, place where, that, where this happens. But it's so much more than that. In this passage, in no fewer than 10 places, do we see things where Jesus is taking on himself, where Christ is taking on himself things that don't belong to him. And I'm not saying this like he's doing it in a selfish way. He's taking on things that you would not want to take on. He's taking things from you and from me that don't belong to him. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. 
The punishment that brought us peace was put on him over and over again. Jesus is taking on things that don't belong him, but rather they should be us. They should belong to us. He's, he's bearing weights and punishments that should have been done to us. We should have been beaten and afflicted, but he was. We should have been oppressed and judged, but he was. We should have been stricken, but he was. The pain and the suffering of Christ is not just displayed in the physical torture. If you remember when I talked about that word cut off or that word pierced, and it talked about the most violent of deaths, the most painful of deaths, there have been times in my life where I thought, well, how... I mean, what, is that really, really true? Because tons of people have been crucified and I know that people have had even more painful deaths than crucifixion physically. But here's the kicker. Here's the key. Here's the violence. Here's the pain. Not only was Jesus disfigured and had physical violence pushed upon him for our sake, but in the midst of it, he was bearing the weight of the sins of the world. He was bearing your griefs. He was bearing your suffering. He was carrying all of that weight in the midst of all that pain. He took our place. He took my place. He took your place. And he knew he was going to do it. In Luke chapter 22, verse 37, the day before Jesus goes to the cross, he says this, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, he who knew no sin, Christ, became sin on our behalf. And it would be one thing. It would be, I think, we would feel like this is amazing. This is enough if we saw that Jesus took all that on himself and he took that from us, the things that we hate about ourselves, the things that we don't want in us. But not only does he, do, not only does he pay the consequences of our sin, he says, I have a gift for you on top of that. I'm going to give you something that you don't deserve. I'm not just going to have mercy and take on things that I don't deserve. I'm going to give you something that you don't deserve. I'm going to put you in my place. There's this amazing passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Did you hear that? Partakers of the divine nature. He shares with us his very person. He gives payment for sin on the cross and he gives us his righteousness through his life, death, and resurrection. How does he do this? Again, we're gonna go back to verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Why? Because he shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear their sin. He vicariously took on and bore all the wickedness, condemnation, and punishment of being human, of me and you. And now... We get to vicariously live in him. We get to share in his justice. Verse 12, it says, the spoils of the strong and a portion of the great, the divine nature of Christ. Like, this is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This is one of those where, like, where, where someone would say, this is where you probably should have said like, amen or something like that. It's unbelievable. And so how do we follow Christ in this? What we're seeing in this picture of him taking on us or taking our place and putting us in his place, what we're seeing 
is the absolute sacrificial suffering of the servant Jesus Christ. He's a sacrificial sufferer. He enters in to our pain and gives us his righteousness. He sacrifices and he suffers in the midst of us. And this becomes an example for us. This sacrificial suffering becomes an example for us in the rest of our lives, in the way that we live every part of our life, in the way that we are called to live every single part of our life. Sacrificial suffering. The servant, the king, was a sacrificial sufferer. Such irony and such beauty. And we are called to live that same life. And I don't want to get it kind of turned around. We are not seeking out suffering. It's not like we're going into the world looking for suffering so that we might be more like Christ because so we see that he suffers, so we're going to go look for suffering. There have been plenty of saints of old that I think have gotten that a little bit misconstrued and they thought that simply by seeking out suffering in their life or causing suffering in their life that maybe they would have a, more, a better nearness to Christ or more pleasing to Christ. We're not seeking out suffering, but here's what we do understand and completely recognize. We are sacrificing. And when you sacrifice, when you give up of yourself, when you choose to be selfless instead of selfish, what happens? Suffering. Even if it's just simply the suffering of like, I'm not going to be selfish. Even if it's just the suffering of, I don't get all the things that I inside me want. I enter into that. I follow the example of Christ. Let me give you just three quick practical examples, but it's, it's to be applied to every area of your life. And so maybe we'll just do the work of like three simple ones that might apply to quite a few people in the room. I want you to think about your spouse, I want you to think about your kids, and I want you to think about your money. Your spouse, your kids, and your money. And how do we apply what it looks like to be Jesus, a sacrificial suffering servant in those places? When people get married, they make this commitment to one another, but oftentimes what I see happens, and it's so natural for us, and I've been absolutely guilty of this, what we prove by our attitudes and our actions is that we're actually inviting our spouse on a journey of our own selfishness. We're actually inviting our spouse to support our selfishness. I love you when you make me happy, and I'll try to make you happy too, and maybe that'll work for us. And then when our selfishnesses collide, what happens? Well, I don't like this very much anymore. Marriage is not a journey of selfishness. It's a journey of selflessness. If I don't endeavor to sacrifice for my wife in a way that is absolutely going to cause some personal suffering for me, I'm not loving her the way Christ did. That can be applied in so many ways. Your kids. Sometimes people come into being a parent and they go, yeah, a kid sounds fun, that's to be great. And then they have a kid and they're like, wow, this really seems to be putting a damper on my freedom. And then the world's out there telling you, oh, be really, really careful. Don't lose yourself. I mean, you gotta, you gotta put yourself number one, right? Don't lose yourself, which is so anti-gospel. I can't, I can't even explain it. Like, like the gospel says to lose yourself and by losing yourself, you will gain Christ who is truly who you are. We want to lose ourselves. And yet flowing all around us is keep your hobbies, keep your travel, pursue that 80-hour-a-week corporate ladder climb. These are things that you just have to do. Your kids will understand. None of those things that I just mentioned are bad in and of themselves. But when those cost our kids... We will sacrifice our kids at the altar of our own selfishness. 
Our freedom will mean their slavery, but our sacrifice will mean their freedom. And every single one of you in this room that is a parent or who will be a parent, we have the opportunity to do that. And then lastly, your money. We talked about money a, a little bit ago, a few months ago, we did a series on it. And maybe you're sitting in this room and you go, oh, that's not a bit, I have no money, so I guess it doesn't apply to me. Well, let's, let's talk about it for, for a second. I would venture to guess that if we really looked at a cross-section of the entire world, most of us, if not all of us in this room, are kind of on the rich side of things. Not only that, but let's look at all of our resources. Let's look at our time, our skills, the things that God has given us, right? We can hold those things with a closed hand. Whether it's money, whether it's your skills, whether it's your time, we can hold those things with a closed hand. Or we can choose to selflessly share those and invest those in other people and watch other people flourish. Watch other people around us like have an opportunity to see Christ in us and be attracted to him. We need to apply these things to every part of our life. To the degree that we see each part of our life as an opportunity for sacrificial suffering, that is the degree to which we will be like Jesus. Before we head into our time of communion, I just want to finish with jumping back to a passage that we had read over us during worship. This message that we're talking about, this, this picture of Jesus pursuing his bride is incredible news. This picture of what it looks like for someone who loves so deeply that they would sacrificially suffer, who would suffer violence for someone, is incredible news to the suffering. It is incredible hope to the hopeless. It is incredibly good news, and we are called to do something with it. And so I want us to see that. Flip back over to Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7, and, and think again about that passage that was read over us. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up your voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. This message, this beautiful picture of Jesus pursuing his bride, we are supposed to step into it. We're supposed to follow the example, but we're supposed to share it. We're supposed to be the beautiful feet that take the good news to the world around us. So let's be those people this week, this month, the rest of our lives. Amen? Amen. Every week here at Redemption, we celebrate communion. And I, I can't think of a more fitting time after talking about the sacrifice of Christ and everything that he has done for us to celebrate these incredible elements. There are amazing truths that come out of this passage, and there's a lot of ways to say these truths, but I just want you to consider a couple of these as we go into communion. Jesus Christ was treated by God as if he had done everything that we have done, so that if you believe in him, you are treated as if you have done everything that he has done. Do you get that exchange? He was treated, I'm the sinner. I'm the wicked one. But he was treated as that. So that if I believe in him, he treats me. He treats me like I haven't done those things. He treats me like I am Christ. It's an unbelievable truth. God has put himself where we deserve to be so that we can stand where he deserves to be. It's an incredible transaction of grace purchased by his life, his death, his resurrection. 
And it's what these elements represent. You hold in your hand a small piece of bread and some juice. They represent the body of Christ that we read about, suffered, broken for you. It also represents his life, his perfect life lived for you. The righteousness that he gives to you in that incredible exchange and that juice represents his blood spent for you to pay for your sin. If you're here this morning and you call upon the name of the Lord and you say, that is my Savior. I want to invite you to join in the participation of taking these elements in remembrance and celebration of him. But if you happen to be here this morning and that's just not your story, that's not, that's not where you are yet, we are so, so glad, We're honored that you're here with us. But I want to give you the freedom. You don't need to pretend. You don't need to pretend that this is something that you believe if it's not where you're at yet. The Bible even gives us a warning like, hey, this isn't something to do lightly or in some level of disrespect. But this would be a time for you maybe to think about like, why have I not submitted to Christ? Why have I not seen this passage and what he has done, the great lengths, the suffering that he has gone through to redeem me, to love me, to want me, to to give me hope? Why haven't I accepted it? I'd encourage you, don't leave here today without asking that question without answering that question. And if you want to talk to someone, I'll be around after the service. There's leaders and pastors here who would love to to talk to you. I'm going to pray in a moment. And then we're going to, when your heart is prepared, you take those elements and then we're going to sing. And we're going to sing loud. And there might be tears. And there might be emotion. And that's awesome. That is good. Because we're going to sing and continue to live and enter into what Christ has done for us. Father, we come before you, God. We're so thankful for your kindness to us. God, the word says that your kindness leads us to repentance. God, it's it's an odd word to think about when we've just talked about the suffering and the violence that was done to you. But God, in kindness, in mercy, you have done those things. God, you have gone to those places to redeem wicked sinners like us. God, we praise you. We thank you. God, don't ever let us forget what you have done. Don't ever ever let us forget the suffering sacrifice. God, we love you, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.